The Royal Health Voice, Episode 22, Cradle to Career. Welcome to The Royal Health Voice. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss rural health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. What do communities need to attract employers, and what does that have to do with health? Travis Dayton, President and Chief Executive Officer of United Way of Southwest Virginia, discusses their method of improving health in the region through a cradle-to-career approach. Well, welcome, Travis. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to be speaking with you and your listeners today. Oh, yeah. And of course, also thank you for agreeing to be one of the plenary session speakers for the VRHA conference in November for the Rural Health Voice Conference. And we invited you because you've been talking about the need to change how we approach health in our rural communities. So let's look at some background for that first. You know, when I see your website, I notice that the United Way of Southwest Virginia fights for, and I'm quoting here, the health, education, and financial stability of every person in Southwest Virginia. That seems like a pretty big scope. Why have you chosen such an all-encompassing view? Well, it is, uh, it's very complex and complicated work, we would say, and we consider ourselves what we refer to as a new model United Way and are one of the cutting edge organizations among rural United Ways in North America right now and really establishing and setting forward some new areas of focus and work and and how we deliver upon our mission. Focusing on really improving educational, financial stability, and health outcomes basically boils down to a shift in mindset thinking from our organization moving as being known as a premier fundraiser and distributor to an organization today really focused on the bottom line results, the lives that are changed, and the communities that are shaped with the idea more around going upstream and preventing things before they happen. Uh, this is a more cost-efficient investment for us and uh, is more efficient for us to work on solving a problem before it ever exists. And basically looking at folks and knowing about an individual's ability to live successfully independently and be a good steward of their community is comes down to those three building blocks, making sure that you have a good education to get the job that you would like to have and earn the living that you would like to earn, uh, financial stability, making sure those earnings are protected, making sure their assets are built and well-managed, but also with the realization, regardless of how smart you are and how much money you make, if you do not have good health, uh, you will probably not live very long. So, Looking at those three areas, which are as deep and broad as you mentioned, how can we position ourselves as an organization to really work collectively to improve those outcomes and work as a region and a community to make sure that more kids enter kindergarten ready to succeed, that more are reading proficiently by third grade, graduating high school on time, pursuing post-secondary education, our job, but that our families are stable, they're self-sufficient, they have a rainy day fund when needed, 
but also youth are avoiding risky behaviors and really priding themselves with physical fitness and activity and making sure that that they are living healthy lives. So it's it's an ambitious uh, line of work, but we uh, think those are the three areas that deserve the most concentration as well. We positioned ourselves not only on a regional model to do this, but really on a cradle to career continuum to make sure that we are building a healthy, well-educated, financially stable workforce of tomorrow. So you see health education and financial stability very much as being intertwined instead of separate components. Yes, we refer to that as a part of the social fabric and any tear or weakened part of that fabric kind of weakens the whole system. Now, you mentioned cradle to career. Talk to me more about that. What is that approach? Well, particularly what we've noticed over the past few years is a lot of employers in rural America are really wanting to have a solid workforce. Um, Additionally, parts of rural America are seeing a shrink in their population. Uh, Folks are tending to move to more urban areas for occupational opportunities, higher paying wages, and that all boils down to the big aspect in communities about economic development and the creation and obtainment of higher paying livable wage jobs. And in our work and our research over the past decade in not only positioning ourselves around health, education, and financial stability, really looked at what does a community need in place to be attractive economically for those employers that can provide those great jobs with those livable wages. And ultimately, I I refer back to a conversation that I heard Senator Tim Kaine speak of when he was governor. He had a friend that was a site selector. And when he was no longer governor and the friend had retired from being a site selector, he asked that individual, when you are looking at particular locations for major manufacturers to land their businesses, for big professional banks and organizations where to select their next hub in a community or a region, what was the most important thing and basis of that decision? And the site selector said the workforce. Every time it boiled down to the workforce, most of the time when they put those opportunities out for bid for different states and different regions, they already necessarily knew where they wanted to go. They wanted to make sure they got the best bid and uh, incentives for where they did want to go. But 95% of the time, it sounded as if they were making those decisions based on the availability of a workforce. And when you look at workforce and you look at what the needs are there, they have to be educated. They have to be financially stable. Uh, They got to be able to have transportation to pay medical bills when they have an illness or need uh, particular assistance on something. But they also have to be healthy. They have to be mentally stable. They have to have the soft skills that they need. They need to be able to show up on time and and work hard and as a team. And those particular things are how we landed on the aspect of cradle to career because you can't create a workforce at the end of the pipeline. You can't always... uh, 
address that issue as efficiently as you could in the beginning. Um, basically, we realized that the employers and the future employees of tomorrow are 12 plus years in the making from when they are introduced to this earth, from when they enter kindergarten to how they succeed through life, ultimately positioning them for their adulthood and their employability and uh, successfulness. And thinking about the workforce in Southwest Virginia and the employability, with the opioid crisis, we've heard lots of rumors and horror stories about employers not being able to find workers that can pass drug screenings, or if they have, you know, a surprise screening, having to send a whole bunch of people home. D do you see that as reality? Is that just myth and rumor? Is that blown out of proportion, or is that our just the way we are now? Sometimes it depends from location to location. I think all parts of rural America have experienced a significant impact from opioids. Uh, it, unfortunately, many communities in Southwest Virginia have been among per capita some of the highest rates of prescribing opioids over the past two decades. But however, there are some employers that experience some challenges in that space, not just in uh, certain parts of this region, but throughout the United States because of the addictability of those particular substances and, and how they can affect someone's uh, livelihood. But our employers also see the need for a skilled workforce and that can see individuals and folks that have the competencies of the 21st century. And basically, throughout the United States, with automation and artificial intelligence, over the next even two decades, it's proje projected that even more jobs are going to require more than a uh, high school diploma. And some of the lower-skilled jobs will be absorbed through advances in technology and artificial intelligence. But there is argument, too, there will still be jobs. It's not we're going to be officially ran by computers, but where are the smart people that are going to run the computers? And these challenges are constantly changing and evolving. And I think rural communities across the Commonwealth, as well as Virginia, really also not only see the importance of a skilled and higher educational attainment than what we are ranked with as other parts of the Commonwealth, but also with the realization that substance abuse, and I say substances from alcohol, from opioids, from meth, any type of drug have hindered that work and have really pressured our systems of educational institutions, of hospital systems, mental health. Uh, and it has become more challenging in rural communities because of that to produce those educational outcomes because the systems are stressed enough and challenged. And a lot of times in rural communities, there tends to be gaps and capacities in how to recover from those particular types of instances or let's say hotspots of, of opioids and uh, recovery efforts. 
Looking at the other end of the cradle to career, you've recently hosted the Rural Summit for Childhood Success. What was the purpose of that event? Yes, the, the purpose of the Rural Summit for Childhood Success was really built around the realization that rural communities throughout the Commonwealth have, again, been stressed by substance abuse from the judicial system to law enforcement to early education to all of the different sectors and branches of a community that make sure children are prepared and ready to succeed every day in life and in school. Those systems have become harder to serve particular children and families because the need for opioid-exposed children with needle absence syndrome and other particular challenges require more attention and direct service in classrooms and other types of, of areas. So this particular summit was really built around bringing together leadership from across the Commonwealth, multi-sector, multi-jurisdictional, to explore trauma and to look at how trauma is a secondary uh, exposure technically from adverse childhood experiences. So if a family, if an individual had a family member that their parents were separated or they were lived in poverty or food insecure or in a household with drug abuse, those particular activities can lead to stressors of an individual's life and that can produce trauma which stays with that individual and particularly looking at some cause and effect and what happens with that trauma if it is not uh, addressed and not counseled and released from an individual that that can stay with them mentally throughout the rest of their life, which leads them to have further risk of exploring uh, drug abuse, substance abuse, alcoholism, uh, use of tobacco, other narcotics, because they're trying to cope with that. So this particular effort was really built around convening individuals, creating a common understanding of a of trauma and adverse childhood experiences, but then working and discussing ways that systems and sectors could collaborate together to respond to this epidemic, but also work collaboratively to address these issues and build resiliency among the families, the children, but also the serving systems that address and help children and families every day. So have you seen any results from that event? Well, we have seen some great success so far. Uh, in Southwest Virginia, we have joined the statewide ne network of trauma-informed community networks where we are positioning ourselves in a collective way, utilizing collective impact, to build a system response. So as of today, we've been very uh fortunate to have the support of the Virginia Early Childhood Foundation and the Virginia Department of Health, where we are currently in the process of positioning and building a collaborative effort to work on defining the problem, building a common understanding, training more community providers to be aware of trauma, 
work collaboratively to address that, but also build resiliency. And short term, we just hosted this uh, summit in May to be able to start to bring community partners together, but also just ensure awareness and raising the conversation of trauma and ACEs and the impact that that has on an individual's life has short term been a huge success just to in plain bring awareness to this issue. And I was very proud to be part of that event talking about rural health advocacy. Thank you. Yes, rural health uh, and advocacy is a, an important piece. I think in any of our work throughout this continuum and producing educational outcomes, we also are embedding and in the process of building out some of those health components to that as well. But once you work out those programmatic pieces and you're starting to produce outputs and working for those outcomes, it always seems to be that there eventually is a policy or procedure that hinders or is not there or lands in the way of um, sort of a roadblock for this. So being aware of those things, advocating for the correction of those and the policies we made 10, 20 years ago, five years ago, may not be the policies that we need today. So being aware of those things and being able to collaborate, but also share those insights and and speak to how adjustments to policies can help this work is a crucial part of any any work. Tell our listeners about Alice. Yes, uh, we are uh, very excited about the engagement that we have had around ALICE. And ALICE is an acronym coined by United Ways um, out of originally out of the United Way of New Jersey and is an acronym that stands for Asset Limited Income Constrained and Keyword Employed. And ALICE populations are individuals that are working uh, in their community, but their earnings do not exceed the cost of living. And these are individuals, in addition to a federal poverty established guideline, that are over the threshold of receiving any type of public assistance, but under the cost of living in their community. So, for example, in certain communities in southwest Virginia, if you're a single individual, on average, you would need to earn $12.50 an hour to have a basic survival household budget, which means a place to stay, reliable transportation, ability to put food on the table, and pay your light bill. It doesn't account for... uh, Additional expenditures such as cable TV, cell phones, those particular activities. But what would an individual need in order to survive? And then by a census level track throughout the Commonwealth, we have established what that cost of living is. And in certain communities, again, as I mentioned in Southwest Virginia, the earnings for an individual would be $12.50 an hour just to break even and make ends meet. So it doesn't count of savings and assets, those type of things. And if an individual is working and they are employed and only earning $11 an hour, they may be 
depending on the the federal poverty threshold over that level, but under performing what they need to live and survive in addition to a basic household sur- survival budget. So this is a population uh, that we have been bringing more awareness about and producing some reports on local communities throughout the Commonwealth, what that population looks like, but also to help lead conversation around leadership in local governments and communities on what resources are available to that population, but how are we helping to minimize that population as well, the population that is Alice, how are we helping them get out of the Alice population? For example, obtain a higher paying job, uh, finish their college degree or get their GED, learn how to save and plan and build financial stability. Ultimately, Alice is a population that is very prevalent throughout the Commonwealth. And in addition to a combined poverty level, about 50% of the population in most communities in Southwest Virginia, uh, as well as statewide, really struggle to make ends meet. And one of the complications that we see is you you can talk about having someone get more education, GED, whatever, but if you're employed, trying to maybe attend community college classes is not the simplest thing to work on your work schedule. Yes. uh, For this population, two particular things. One, they are a very vital piece of our economy. They could be the cashier at the grocery store. They could be the child care worker where you take your child to school. They could be the person that works at the auto shop that helps uh, repair a vehicle. And all vital services and important in our communities and our economy. But also these folks are can be very challenged in how to get out of that cycle and how to advance beyond where they currently are because of things you have talked about, reliable transportation, access to child care, the affordability of it, the the scheduling, how can I earn my paycheck and also uh, care for my child and go back to school. So what do you see as the future of rural health? I think rural health is really, it's it's going, I think over the next decade, it's going to be a true pivotal point of where we go from here, particularly, yes, the challenges around opioids, but it's a substance and it's opioids today, it was something else tomorrow and really having access to health in rural communities is a crucial piece. And I know with Medicaid expansion, there's been great strides and efforts to enroll more people and has brought more to that. But I do think particularly rural communities are really going to have to figure out ways to look at things before they start and build healthy behaviors and awareness and education around 
types of activities or behaviors that can reduce an individual's life expectancy that can lead to more risk of disease and higher concentration of those particular uh, issues. But I think the, the, the future is really working toward getting ahead of those things and really understanding how the earlier, the better of building those habits, but also with the realization some of these things are generational cycles and will require long-term investment and mindset thinking. And as some folks have been quoted before saying, a lot of this work is a, it is a marathon. It is definitely not a sprint and change will take time for that to happen. But I do think the awareness has been heightened more than ever before. There's more data and research and sure medical advances around addressing and uh, treating these particular things. But the ultimate piece of it all is preventing those things before they ever happen. And really, how are we building our communities and our future around that conversation? If people are concerned about health and health care in their community, what can they do? What steps should they take? Well, I think there's there's lots of activities even throughout uh, the Commonwealth and some great partners that are there that not everyone may know about. For example, um, the Virginia Foundation for Healthy Youth has several cohorts and activities throughout the Commonwealth, and especially in, in some rural communities, doing some fantastic work. The State Office of Rural Health is really working in rural communities to make sure that there are great things happening and including local health departments and community service boards and for individuals to become more aware of those partners and those initiatives, but also with the realization there are entities and organizations out there working to address these things and would welcome more involvement from local citizens and community organizations and for individuals to be able to know about those things and reach out and roll up their sleeves and volunteer, become involved from serving on a local school board to a local PTA to even maybe running for a city council or board of supervisor position in a community, being able to share that knowledge and that concern with constituents, but also discuss and work in a meaningful way with others, regardless of politics and party, regardless of Democrat or Republican, and work for the common good and to be able to listen to others but understand we're all in this together, regardless of of what party our affiliation or what the color of our skin is that we all want to live to see tomorrow and how can we work together collaboratively to do that. And if you could do anything, what would you do to improve health and healthcare in rural America? I, I, that's a big question. Uh, it is. I, I'm not sure I've, would have just one silver bullet for that particular piece 
just yet. But I do know if we could help change the mindset a little around the capacity of communities and nonprofits and even governmental entities to collaborate and work in this space. There's tends to be a lot of misconception a lot of times about nonprofit organizations and their capacity and their overhead cost and having the staffing to do some of these programmatic functions when if I'm trying to solve a problem, I want the best folks that I can have on my team. And from national foundations, uh, research entities to healthcare uh, nonprofits and things, us having a, a real conversation around what capacity looks like, as well as what investment needs to be made into this space, I think would would really be a good return in the long haul. And I'm I am all for a balanced budget and us making sure that ends ends are met, but also that we are being accountable and conservative and equitable in this space. But also it will require investment. It will require us to put resources in the future and plan ahead. And I think the more that we can be aware of that, but also have an open mind and willingness to do those things would, in the long run, maybe help us to prevent things before they ever start. Great. Well, thank you for joining me, Travis. Well, thank you so much for having me. We really uh, look forward to uh, the upcoming event and uh, are very excited to learn from others throughout the Commonwealth on what they're doing and really look forward to supporting the work in rural Virginia and improving health outcomes for all. That's Travis Staten promoting the need to invest in communities to ensure future success. If you want to hear more from Travis and be part of the conversation about rural health, join the Rural Health Voice Conference in Martinsville this November. Visit the show notes for a link to the details. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.